fourth bound uh, from, oh, let's call it Aptos uh, into about Soquel. Uh, slow and go conditions there. Very slow, as a matter of fact. And also on Highway 1, southbound, uh, slow and go conditions right uh, straight through the beginning and ending of the Moss Landing area. Other than that, let's take a look at Highway 101. We have a short stretch northbound Highway 1 uh, into Morgan Hill that's slow and go. And even, even slower uh, between San Juan Batista and Gilroy, uh, northbound Highway 101 is moving very slowly. Highway 17 northbound you'll find is slow and go as well. Let's see. Uh, it goes all the way into Los Gatos and comes from about oh Summit Road. So Highway One North uh, 17 uh, northbound is uh, slow and go conditions there as well. Your Central Coast forecast for the Bay Area: sunny skies today with a high of 68. Uh, well, we've already beaten that. I'll tell you that in a moment. Tonight, mostly clear with a low of 50. Uh, tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high of 71. Right now, outside the KSEO studios, it is 70 degrees. Told you we'd beat that 68. Now, stay tuned for Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, getting pesticides out of our soil, air, and water. Conventional agriculture has become heavily dependent on dangerous chemicals to grow the majority of our food, with serious negative health effects for humans and wildlife. But a growing movement to ban certain cancer-causing chemicals is picking up speed. Find out how as we talk with Mark Weller, co-director of Californians for Pesticide Reform, and Mary Flodine, author, teacher, and activist. She is an activist for getting pesticides away from our schools. In addition to pesticides, we'll talk about how campaign finance reform might break the toxic alliance between big chemical companies and your elected representatives. And we have a podcast to which you can subscribe at planetwatchradio.com. We're now heard on every continent, and we are coming up on our 100th show here. Um, we also have a Patreon uh, crowdfunding platform. Uh, you can support us at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash planet underscore watch. And we would like to thank MZ, Mike Zwirling, for supporting this program on KSCO, local AM radio in Santa Cruz, California. And we'd like to give a special shout-out to our listeners at WCOM in North Carolina and the Carborough area. We hope you're drying out. And also to our friends in Columbus, Ohio, for listening in on the Green Radio Network. Your donation on Patreon actually helps us get on other stations. So thank you very much to those of you who have contributed thus far. Before we go to our interviews today, we have a couple of headlines and science news for you and one directly related to the state of North and South Carolina. 
Rivers and waterways in North and South Carolina are expected to crest today and to remain at dangerous flood levels for days to come. Duke Energy released a statement saying that breaches in a cooling lake dam forced the company to shut down its natural gas-fired plant in North Carolina. The company also estimates that the storm has washed away more than 2,000 cubic yards of coal waste, enough to fill about 150 dump trucks. The company also reports that the dam separating the Cape Fear River from man-made Sutton Lake, which holds water used to cool the power plant, suffered several small breaches along with one larger breach. While the plant now uses natural gas, it was once powered by coal, meaning heavy metals including arsenic, lead, mercury, and, and chromium are pouring into the river. In July, the EPA's acting director and former coal industry lobbyist, Andrew Wheeler, moved to weaken coal ash regulations put in place by the Obama administration. Uh, in the past decade, there have been two major coal ash bills in the U.S. In 2008, a break in the dam at the Tennessee Valley Authority's Kingston Power Plant sent over a billion gallons of coal ash cascading into the Clinch River. The black sludge blanketed over 300 acres, inundating the areas around Kingston, Tennessee. The, sp the spill destroyed three homes and damaged a dozen others. Scientists found fish contaminated with high levels of arsenic and selenium months after the spill. So clearly something needs to be done about coal ash not being put in these big settling ponds. Um, and you see the effects of global warming with increased intensity of rainfall during hurricanes causing these very ponds to overflow into the waterways. And in some cases, the older ponds didn't even have liners, so they got into the groundwater. A real mess, even if you don't live directly next to one of these coal-fired plants. In other news, desperate times may cause call for desperate measures, and scientists and engineers are looking at new ways to slow sea level rise caused by melting glaciers. One such geoengineering plan envisions the building of underwater walls to keep out warm water and hold glaciers in place. A small underwater wall blocking about 50% of warm water from reaching the ice shelf base could have 70% chance of succeeding, while larger walls would be even more likely to delay or even stop ice sheet collapse. A new study published in the European Geosciences Union journal The Cryosphere looks at how a fairly localized and relatively modest intervention could prevent what some say could be a three-meter sea level rise if glaciers such as Antarctica's Thwaites ice stream were to melt. This, meeting, this melting would cause flooding in coastal cities, affecting millions of people. The engineers Wolovic and Moore were adamant that the best way to avert sea level rise is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Engineering glaciers would only limit sea level rise, while reducing emissions could also limit other harmful consequences of climate change, such as ocean acidification, floods, droughts, and heat waves. So, you know, if you're hell-bent on building a wall, <laughs> maybe this is a wall that could at least do a little good. Um, you know, uh, I mean, forget about the Sahara Desert or, you know, the Sonoran Desert between Mexico and uh, Texas. But look, uh, here, here's a little bit of cosmic relief for you. Uh, out in the sky, something remarkable has just happened. Uh, the Japanese have successfully landed two tiny robots on an asteroid. 
And it's a rock uh, a little over half a mile wide out in the asteroid belt. <laughs> the word asteroid means uh, star-like. I mean, they aren't really star-like. Stars are powered by nuclear fusion. Asteroids are rocks. But in a telescope, they're kind of star-like. They're like a star that moves from night to night. That's about all you can see in a telescope. But anyway, this robot has sent us back pictures. Two, two robots. They're about seven inches long. And they land and then they hop around on the surface. <laughs> They're kind of like little wheels uh, that, with cameras and thermometers and their motions are being monitored by the uh, parent um, satellite, which is hovering close by called Hayabusa that released them recently. Is it feeling and protective? <laughs> <laughs> you said they're hovering by their little robots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was up there about 12 miles up for months and then it recently lowered down to four miles and then just recently it swooped in and released them just a couple of hundred feet above the surface of the uh, the asteroids. So they're exploring the gravitational uh, strength of the asteroid and so on. And so uh, it's, stay tuned. We've got a lot of new science coming from outer space. And since there's two of them, they could take selfies. Right. <laughs> send them back to Earth. Well, actually, they, they did take a, a picture of the Hayabusa satellite up there above them the, <laughs> that had sent them down. <laughs> so uh, congratulations to the Japanese, and would that America would get back. Let's make America great again with leading space research and actual science. Sounds good to me. Well, we're really excited to have two guests in studio today on Planet Watch. Um, and reminding you, you are listening to Planet Watch with Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan, your hosts. Uh, we have with us in studio Mark Weller. Mark joined Californians for Pesticide Reform staff in 2014 as a community organizer for the Monterey Bay Area and became co-director in March 2016. He is based here in the Monterey Bay and provides mentorship and support for organizers statewide. He has also worked for 13 years as projects director for the Monterey Bay-based United Here Local 483, organizing community and political support for hospitality workers. He is also the co-author of Dollars and Votes, How Business Campaign Contributions Subvert Democracy. Welcome to Planet Watch, Mark. Thank you, Rachel. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Also in our studio is Mary Flodine, and in addition to being Joe Jordan's partner, for which she should get a PhD, I think, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we... How she has a lustrous career um, as a school teacher and also as an activist, educating people about the dangers of pesticides being sprayed around schools. And in the 80s, uh, she and her colleagues knew very little about how many or what kind of agricultural pesticides were being sprayed adjacent to their schools. Here in the central coast of California, we have strawberries and lettuce very close to schools and other uh, daycare centers where children are. And um, as a result of their concern growing when they found out how toxic these pesticides were and how much they could drift, Mary and others helped form Farm Without Harm. And that has evolved into Safe Ag, Safe Schools, a coalition of over 50 organizations and individuals working together to reduce the threat of pesticide exposure in the Monterey Bay area. So welcome, Mary. Thank you. Wonderful to be here with you all and with Mark. Great to have you both. By so, the way, that yeah. acronym for Safe Ag, Safe Schools is SAS. S A S S. Sassy bunch of folks. And you should see the teachers that are involved right now in the schools. They are sassy. <laughs> well, it's the mother bear instinct to protect children, right? So tell us um, both what you're working on now and what, what are some of your top concerns. I mean, we've all heard that 
pesticides are bad and that they can cause cancer and other neurological deformities and even lower our IQs. We know they're high, heavily used. Why don't we start just setting a bigger picture? Like how many pounds are used in the United States, if you know, and how big of a problem is their application to human health? Oh, goodness. So uh, one of the problems with understanding how much is used is the the lack of a good record keeping except in some states like California. So the estimate is over 2 billion pounds in the United States. Um, per, and, per year? Yeah, per year. 2 exactly. billion and, pounds. That's annu- hard for me annually. to conceptualize. Yeah, is exactly. that just dump truck loads fall? <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, it's... Football and then, fields deep? I, it's hard for me to picture. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I can't even give you a, a picture of that. That's Joe can do an, an some some analogies. Sounds like mountains full to me. <laughs> too many lots. Yes. Very expensive too. Yeah, and you know, uh, we we have um, concerns. One of the extraordinary moments we have right now is um, we think the scientists have done their job. I mean, they have produced numerous studies over the decades showing uh, the the harms that uh, a lot of these pesticides can cause. Um, most of them that are used, for instance, near the schools where Mary Flodine works um, have been banned in the European Union um, because of these studies. Um, and now uh, we have had to use people power to try to get the government uh, regulatory agencies to to follow the science and to and to protect communities. Um, what, and what's a little snapshot of what the science is telling us? What are some of the effects? And we're not just talking about on mm, the workers, right? We're talking no. about on all of us because of the residual pesticides yeah. on our foods. Is that yes. correct? So yes. What are some of the worst things they can do to us? I mentioned a couple, but I didn't spend much time on. Indeed. Well, a, a number of pesticides, which are currently allowed and perfectly legal in the state of California, are state-recognized carcinogens. Um, and uh, they are used right now, right up to the borderline uh, of schools, except you know during school hours now. Um, and uh, but maybe even more concerning is there, there are uh, entire groups of pesticides, uh, one called organophosphates, which was a group of uh, chemicals developed by um, Nazi war planners um, during the World War II era, and uh, a number of their uh, later versions are are used in California fields, and they they damage brains. Okay, they they go out. They're designed to uh, go after neurological systems and and mess them up. Um, and they were originally designed to do that with humans. Um, they do that really well with pests. But unfortunately, another uh, part of pesticides is they drift. Uh, pesticides drift for um, miles and sometimes weeks after their applications at uh, harmful levels. So we're worried about people's brains. We're worried about people's lungs. We're worried about developing cancer. Those are all, um, you know, some of our central concerns about the harmful effects of pesticides being used right now in California and across the United States. Now, weren't these banned? Were they going to be banned, some of them? Which were the bad actors that were about to be banned up until recently? Yeah, well, this is this has been a a fifty year fight, um, fifty year effort. Uh, farm workers, specifically the United Farm Workers, kind of uh, began this uh, back in the nineteen sixties, and then groups like we were mentioning earlier, Farm Without Harm, and other kind of uh, groups that helped farm workers um, in the fight have developed over time too, um, but. Uh, 
so so well, we, we, in, we've been knocking down you kind of one pesticide at a time mm -hmm. and what we really need to do is uh, address you know larger um, groups of them um, and so most recently uh, and again this is a fight for science itself the pesticide chlorpyrifos is a brain harming um, it's a neurological toxin scientists are nearly unanimous about this um, except the ones, of course, uh, made by Dow Chemical, which creates uh, chlorpyrifos. And so um, the Trump administration rejected its own scientist recommendation at the end of 2016 to ban it in the United States. And so that is one of our current um, fights to make sure that if the Trump administration is not going to protect our communities, then our, our, Calif our state of California needs to do that. Jerry Brown has been touted as such a champion of the environment. He just passed a really great climate change law that says we have to get rid of fossil fuels by 2045. Uh, what has been his response to a request to ban these chemicals? Uh, no response, unfortunately. And he has been, I, I mean, we know he's received tens of thousands of, of letters um, from people in California to do just that. Do we know how much money Dow Chemical has given his campaign? You know, I think some of that stuff is is hard to trace, um, but uh, we know Dow Chemical, at least at the federal level, uh, contributes millions um, to campaigns. Uh, and, you know, they have a, a huge influence over uh, California and U.S. politics. So we can get into campaign finance reform mm -hmm. in a little while, and I hope we do, because it seems like no matter what the public wants, nobody wants to get cancer and become brain dead because of chemicals. We want these things banned, but um, it seems like the certain powers do not want that to happen because of the money to be made. One thing our listeners might want to know about is uh, the instrument through which Governor Brown or whoever is going to be his successor would implement bans or cutbacks in California is, is referred to as the DPR, Department of Pesticide Regulations. That's a state agency that hasn't been responding to all this pressure by the public to defend themselves against the ravages of these chemicals. Now, on the other hand, at the federal level, I just want to uh, mention something. Uh, one of the very first pesticides, the one that Mary's group, Farm Without Harm, was militating against was uh, methyl bromide, which is the same stuff they use to tent houses for termites. You definitely don't want to get near that stuff. However, they don't spray it. They, they apply it under these huge sheets of plastic that you see all over the fields down in the South County area here. It's a fumigant, um, in other words, Yeah, it's gas. a fumigant that uh, kills everything in the soil. And uh, it drifts out, though, and is the issue. It gets out, and, and was there's a lot of evidence that it was poisoning uh, all kinds of people, staff and families uh, associated with schools. The reason it got banned, except that they keep being these exceptions to the ban, but it was banned federal be because it's a major destroyer of the stratospheric ozone. This is research I was involved in back in the 80s in connection with NASA, where we got methyl bromide banned with a few exceptions that keep being granted to strategically politically important areas such as the strawberry growers around here um but i think it has been severely cut back and maybe mark can update us it's on still that. being used though and um it was actually i think many people consider it one of the greatest achievements of human cooperation uh, we've we've managed on this planet was that montreal protocol to ban methyl bromide and other ozone depleting chemicals um but 
it was very frustrating to watch uh, the the terms for the phase out in Watsonville, where I was teaching, to watch uh, that deadline come and go, and for the um, the pesticide use uh, dist pesticide distributors and uh, the, the farmers to continue getting critical exemptions through federal um, allowances because they kept saying that agriculture simply has to has to have these and the, the you know that's one of the problems is they make uh, the industry makes such compelling arguments that are very fear-based that we simply could not have agriculture as we know it we couldn't produce all that food without these pesticides and so that that can be fairly paralyzing that's one of the things that we've been up against all for since since Chavez's early work so let's go back to the story of the fields and the children um, because I think that's where some of the education begins it's really also hard to make the case that you would poison the next generation so that we could eat um, that's a difficult moral argument to make um, so when you were teaching uh, before you got educated about what these pesticides were doing to the children, what were you seeing in terms of their health after the fields around your school was sprayed? Well, um, there were a variety of issues, but uh, there's a kind of a human tendency um, to kind of have tunnel vision, keep your nose down when you're doing a job like teaching. Um, that's You're focusing on education and yeah, kids get sick all the time in schools. Oh gosh, um, a teacher has a miscarriage, another teacher or a child comes down with cancer. So it took us a very long time to put together many uh, different health issues um, with the, the idea that those those um, that plastic tarp out on the other side of the school playground could have some connection with all these issues. But we finally uh, realized, um, sorted out, that there were 13 or 14 different chemicals being used right around the school, and all of them fumigants, and the gases were drifting with the help of the Monterey Bay prevailing winds right into the school playground. And we saw everything from from bloody noses, dizziness, fainting, um, uh, seizures, panic attacks, which are all neurological issues. And we now know there are neurotoxins that are being used right there next to the children. We saw many, many miscarriages um, of uh, uh, young mothers, uh, to both teaching and parents around the school, um, we begin to began to hear um, parents would take their kids to Stanford Oncology, and we would hear, "Oh, gee, the nurse told the doctor here's another kid from Watsonville with cancer." We saw um, particularly a bone cancer that one of my dear friends, a teacher, ended up dying from, and uh, after many years teaching there, and she confessed to me just before her death that she felt that it was pesticide-related, a, a rare type of bone cancer. Um, uh, over the chart, off the charts, asthma. So every system of the body was affected, the endocrine system, the, the brain, um, reproductive system, the respiratory system. Kids had weird skin rashes, and we would parents would tell us, we've taken our kid everywhere, every pediatrician, nobody can understand these rashes. Well, of course, that's definitely a, uh, a symptom. But the other thing I wanted to mention is just that um, Mark said there's been very solid research done 
on these pesticides. But um, back in the, the mid-80s, when we were first starting to ask questions, we were told all of the time, you're just a bunch of hysterical women, and mostly women teaching in elementary schools, and there is absolutely no data to support your fears. You're just, you're just idle fears. And I just heard that res recently on the news in reference to some other issue. I can't remember what now. That's one of the typical responses. But we now have massive data, excellent, rigorous, long-term studies on all of these chemicals. And we know that, oh, autism was another one. I, I recently um, was teaching in a middle school in Watsonville, and um, I saw kids who had been exposed from their farm worker mothers in utero all the way through kindergarten, elementary, and now they're in middle school. And some of these poor kids were um, just uh, deranged on the autism Asperger's spectrum, um, violent, uh, unable to focus or sit still for a second, unable to um, uh, con concentrate or understand anything. And it was that particular class of kids that had been exposed for their entire life, including when they were conceived. What you're talking about is a human experiment done on people that um, now has data attached to it, but those people did not consent to be part of that human experiment. There was a study called Chamacos, which is one of the most comprehensive scientific studies of children and the health effects of pesticides on them, and I believe it was conducted around the Monterey Bay area. Is that correct, Mark? Yes, it's, it's been an ongoing longitudinal study um, that started uh, with a cohort of 2,000. And they've been following, um, well, they, they started with women in the Salinas Valley, uh, 800 of them, I believe, and have followed their children's development, um, connecting them to exposure to organophosphates, again, the, the branch of chemicals uh, invented by the Nazis. And, uh, you, you know... It, they found a lot, um, many of them confirming what, what Mary was just talking, you know, her concerns about higher incidences of ADHD, of learning disabilities, um, uh, of higher... Now, actually, the Chimaco study hasn't found the autism link, but UC Davis has in, in another study. Um, and uh, so just to give you an idea, very small amounts of these pesticides are... Co correlate with really concerning um, uh, brain damage. And so what Chamacos found, for instance, was by the time these children were seven years old, if their mom um, had been exposed during pregnancy to just 522 pounds of organophosphates applied over the course of the pregnancy, over the course of nine months, within about two-thirds of a mile, within a kilometer of, of where they lived, um, they tended to have IQ scores that were more than two points below, uh, you know, similar populations that were not exposed uh, to these organophosphates. And, you know, that's roughly what we're seeing with um, uh, children who've been in communities with high uh, lead content in, in, in their water. So th that's the kind of concern that we have about this. And um, that's why, you know, we need the regulators to follow the science and, and eliminate the use of some of these worst. worst I'm reminded of, of Detroit and their water and exactly. Flint and, yes. the, and the water stories coming out of Flint. Michigan. And it's, a, it's environmental racism because and Flint definitely this did not happen in an affluent neighborhood um, in our area of agricultural areas of Central California. These little schools are built right in the 
vicinity of the fields and so mostly farm worker children are in the schools and it's blatant environmental racism that we're doing as you said this experiment on minorities now we do have a little bit of progress to report though um we'll get to the chlorpyrifos and the ban except the question is the enforcement of that ban but uh, the buffer zones around the schools, mm -hmm. maybe Mark can, t I mean, I know I was involved in a lot of these hearings and I was helping testify that, hey, we need a mile wide buffer zone on all four sides of the schools. And they didn't go for that, but they did grant something. What is the latest on that? Mark, tell us about those buffer zones. Yeah, well, uh, through tremendous pressure, and again, we're talking about many tens of thousands of people contributing in some way um, to, this, to this fight. Uh, the people push back about pesticide use near schools. Um, it, in, you know, between about 2014 and, and uh, when it finally became law this, this past January. And we were calling for um, one mile, no pesticide use buffer zones around schools. And um, through the political process, uh, the state has now um, uh, given us a quarter mile uh, buffer zone around school during school hours. So between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., the most drift-prone pesticide applications um, cannot be used near California schools. Uh, uh, they can after hours, um, except for the fumigants that Mary was talking about earlier. The fumigants require a 36-hour gap between the last application and when school starts. So effectively, fumigants can only be applied on Saturdays um, near school grounds. Now, of course, that's worrying in itself, but it's far, it's a huge improvement over what we had before. And again, the fight against these enormous pesticide companies, and then in many cases, the cooperation of, of big ag um, made that really a tremendous victory, a, tr a tremendous pushback. So uh, yes, uh, Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and the science about yeah. how big of a buffer, uh, yeah. what did that say? What was the ideal? Is there any yeah. buffer big enough well, to really... Quarter mile's not adequate. No. We know that. But was a mile yeah. considered a scientific thing or a political yes. thing? So uh, <laughs> one mile in the most comprehensive studies of drift incidents and, you know, where the application was versus you know, the, the people who are, are harmed, they found that um, uh, all but 15% of drift incidents, uh, people harmed by drift incidents were within one mile. So mm -hmm. our argument was if you, if, you get, if you make mile buffer zones, you're gonna reduce the, the effect greatly. Um, there's a, as Mary was saying, quarter mile doesn't really get at the the most people who are harmed by drift incidents because of the the long range um, of not just blowing in the wind but volatilization of pesticides. Uh, so the the science said we needed better, mm -hmm. essentially. But all along in this community conversation, um, there has been an acknowledgement that. Uh, we who are against the pesticide, rampant pesticide use still very much value agriculture and we, we value the fact that we have this uh, agriculture in the Monterey Bay region. It's a very important part of who we are. And so uh, we look for solutions. We realize that a quarter mile or a mile is a huge take of land that could be under production and could then be earning income for growers. Um, so we, we talked... Uh, 
up who were wonderful conversations about uh, sustainable solutions that would involve let's get federal grants and or state grants and let's fund um, uh, experimental uh, uh, bands of um, land around you know in these buffer zones where farmers could uh, try other types of organic methods of growing, like uh, uh, field rows and so many, so so many other appropriate. Didn't methods. you actually succeed? in, I remember there was a story of Farm Without Harm actually started talking with one of the farmers who was a major user of these pesticides and converted him to go organic, right? Yeah, that's a happy story. So I, I don't, I'm not going to mention names, but um, a, a child who was uh, in my classroom once a third grade child um when when we were when the debate was very contentious and angry the farmers were angry and feeling very threatened um 30 20 years later uh that the uncle of that child has become one of the premier organic farmers in the area and i've spoken with him recently and he shared with me that those conversations really um influenced him to decide to go organic. So that's a happy thought. Sometimes progress <laughs> takes some time. There, there was discussion among some people in politics, too, about having a tax on these pesticides that was high enough that would allow mm. them to pay these farmers to make their fields either go fallow mm. or grow organically to, as an incentivizer so that they didn't lose the productivity but had a way to pay for it. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, if you want to interact with our guests today or us on the show... You can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com or you can go on Facebook and type in Planet Watch Radio, right, and uh, communicate with us that way. So, Yes, please do ask us a question or make a comment. Um, we realize there's no easy answers for this story, but um, when the science is telling us very clearly that human health is at risk, not to mention wildlife and other creatures and waterways, um, the response has been very slow. And mm -hmm. there was finally a response from the Obama administration after eight years of them being in power toward the end to ban organophosphates or certain ones, right? Could you mm -hmm. tell us how that finally came about and then what became of it? Yeah. Well, uh, chlorpyrifos, brain-harming chlorpyrifos is one of these organophosphates. And we've known about its harm um, to to children from a number of central epi epidemiological studies out of Columbia University and the Chimaco study that we mentioned earlier. And it was so concerning that at the beginning of the 2000s, back by the end of 2001, the US EPA had banned chlorpyrifos for residential use. Okay. And uh, because our concern continued, well, okay, you've banned it for residential use, but what about the kids who live in um, agricultural communities? What about the, the, the pregnant women there? Um, there had been uh, a series of lawsuits that had pushed the US EPA to uh, do more studies and to um, uh, make decisions about agricultural use of chlorpyrifos continuing. And um, uh, the courts pushed the US EPA till finally they reached a preliminary decision in 2015 and then uh, a final decision in 2016 um, that incorporated uh, these epidemiological studies, studies of, of human beings, the effects on human beings of, of, these, of chlorpyrifos. And uh, in November of 2016, the US EPA said, okay, there's far too, there are health damaging uh, amounts of chlorpyrifos on our food. There are health damaging amounts of chlorpyrifos in our water. 
and there's uh, health damaging amounts of uh, chlorpyrifos in the air. Uh, we can no longer do this. And they recommended to um, the decision makers at the US EPA that the chemical be taken off the market. Um, that was three days before the 2016 presidential election. And uh, to many of our surprise, um, somebody else won uh, the election who has shown, and this Klepirifos decision was one of the first actual policy statements, not just words, but the Trump administration said, no, we're not going to look at this science that our own scientists um, say we need to. Instead, we're going to put this decision off till 2022. Maybe something else will, will come up in the meantime. And what was the grounds on which they were going to delay yeah. action? Well, the, well th there, there were no... So a federal appeals court last month said, um, uh, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you've got to get you got to show that it's safe and you can't say well maybe later studies will show that it's safe mm -hmm. you have to uh, you have to act on the science that's there now and the science that's there now is very clear um uh, and the us epa scientists made that very clear uh there is no safe level of chlorpyrifos right now um in the united states and as we know the trump administration is dismantling our federal regulatory agencies including the epa yeah. So that's why we've turned to the state of California to say, look, obviously the Trump administration um, is rejecting science and you can't. Unfortunately, the state of California has taken a similar route saying, well, let's do more studies. And so in the last two years, we've had more studies. The Office of uh, Environmental Health Hazard Assessment in 2017 said, yes, indeed, chlorpyrifos is a reproductive toxin. Okay, it's officially listed, Prop 65 reproductive toxin. And then just uh, two months ago, the Department of Pesticide Regulation itself said, upon closer examination, um, chlorpyrifos is a toxic air contaminant. So now we have to go through a what could be two years long process of you know, confirming that or not, and then mitigating that. Um, over time. So it, there's this drag out process when the obvious weight of evidence is that um, children's brains are being harmed right now. And as Mary pointed out, in largely Latino communities in the Monterey Bay region, the Department of Public Health found that 300 uh, Latino children are 320% more likely to attend schools near the most hazardous pesticide use. Um, so it's, it's definitely got an environmental justice um, concern about it. And lest you are listening and think maybe that doesn't apply to you, um, there are residual pieces of these chemicals on our food. Um, can you talk a little bit about the risk to people shopping in a supermarket to get these chemicals? Yeah. Well, in the in the last Department of Pesticide Regulation study, and you know they they only look at about less than 4,000 pieces of uh, produce just to let to let you know. But even with their studies. Um, they found one in eight oranges in California have chlorpyrifos on them. So you buy a dozen oranges, those aren't very good odds. So really the only way to protect yourself is to buy organic at Indeed. this point? from chlorpyrifos, yep. And hope they don't ever put them next to yeah. the ones that are contaminated. And that stuff doesn't wash off? Uh, I, I, um, no, I mean, not entirely. Mary, you were going to say something. Because it's so, on the inside of the fruit sometimes. Yeah, yeah. This massive use of um, toxic, acutely toxic chemicals in our foods, um, 
in our grounds, around our schools, hospitals, communities. I think people listening are probably thinking, my gosh, what can we do? So I just wanted to mention right now with the chlorpyrifos, there is a public comment period and you can write letters um, and sign petitions regarding that particular issue. Um, if you go to the website for California for Pesticide Reform, um, CaliforniaForPesticideReform.org. No, it's PesticideReform.org. Yep. Just, Just say it pesti again. PesticideReform.org, yes. And there'll be a, a link there yes. to where you can sign a petition or who you can write a letter to. Also, you can go on the uh, Safe Ag, Safe School org website and get lots more information and action items there so um it there are positives we that's plural by the way right safe ag safe schools dot, dot org, dot org. Yes. yeah and in fact you can come to a meeting and mark you wrote a book about campaign finance reform i wanted to move um our conversation we're speaking with mark weller he's with californians for pesticide reform he's a co-director and Mary Flodine, who is one of the founders of Safe Ag, Safe Schools. And we're talking about how we can reform pesticide use in this country and in one of the heart of the country's agricultural areas, California in particular. This is sometimes where progress gets made, but also where big ag reigns supreme and a lot of decisions that would consider to be a no-brainer. Sorry to use that word since <laughs> these chemicals really do that to us. <laughs> so, right, right. so what about getting them where it hurts. Uh, what about this campaign finance reform? Don't California's laws mm. prevent mm. Dow from giving Jerry Brown so much money he ignores all, all of us? Yes. Well, uh, I mean, you know, the, I, I just want to make sure that people understand I didn't write that book by myself. It was a co-authorship, and it was 20 years ago, and my concern is things have gotten a lot worse regarding the effect of, of money on politics. And uh, so... Uh, and the way we saw it at the time, back in the late 90s, was that um, money in politics works uh, more like uh, you've got two people in your office at the end of the day that um, want to talk to you. And one of them gave you the maximum amount of campaign contributions, and the other is, uh, you know, uh, someone who can't afford that. Um, and so, you know, who are they going to talk to? And so it's usually that access and who you hear over and over again that has an enormous influence on policy. And it's and not just them lobbyists coming to you. Mm, it's you right. being invited on very fancy dinners to really Indeed. glitzy parties on a yacht with these people. So they want contact with you. Yes. And they almost never talk about the business they came for. They just want to make friends with you right. if you're a politician. Right. And this system, you know, as we know, the people who get elected tend to be the ones who raise more. Bernie Sanders kind of put a lie to that by mm. getting small donations. That's the first time a major political presidential candidate has managed to run a serious campaign without that big, dirty money. So that proves you don't have to do it and that we could run other campaigns like that where people are not beholden. Yeah, we, we can and we must if democracy is going to mean anything anymore, I think. Yes. We pretty much have had a corporate coup in our federal government where the heads of these same corporations are the ones now in the regulatory yeah. cabinets, yeah. like the EPA. We just heard about the new uh, acting EPA chief being a coal lobbyist. Mm -hmm. You know, how could you possibly be protecting our health if, if you're protecting your buddies in the coal industry? And that's just, that's anti-democratic, and I, our founders 
would be rolling over in their graves in this country if they knew what had happened to the democracy they envisioned. They did not know there would be mega corporations that mm. had so much power. Or maybe they did, but they didn't put enough safeguards in. I have to say, uh, Hillary Clinton was being interviewed by uh, Stephen Colbert a couple nights ago, and she said, I don't know what's happened to the Republican Party. Well, I have a theory, and I, I challenge anybody out there, prove me wrong. They have been poisoned and infected by money, big money from the billionaires, the weird, evil billionaires, and they are all marching in lockstep to the orders of these weird, evil billionaires. That's the only rational explanation for what I've been seeing going on. Well, Joe, <laughs> it's not just those billionaires are calling the tunes. If you look at the um, income of Congress, uh, the number of Congress people who have over a million dollars or more are worth several million is 51%. The number of millionaires in our country is like but 5%. They, but they get a leg up on that kind of income from the likes of these billionaires and And, and they maybe want to be eventually yeah. become them so that they are yeah. um, they relate better to them than they relate to the rest of us. I um, also have to mention that a vast majority of them are male. That too. <laughs> which may be about to change in this moment. Yeah, actually, of actually, I have to go ahead and say my radical, covertly political statement right now, folks. Um, this week... It, you know, talking about experiments and science. First of all, we've got the big experiment going of whether the human race is toxic to its own environment. The jury's still out on that. But the great experiment in American democracy this week is going to be the ultimate test of that. If you care at all about whatever shreds of democracy we still have left, exercise your democratic birthright of citizenship and write letters, especially to the two women U.S. senators at the northeasternmost and northwesternmost states in our union. And you know what I'm talking about. And you say, well, no, they're not my representative. This is where they need to hear from a groundswell of people all over the country and all over the world that they, they almost alone have the chance to either save the day for a U.S. democracy or be miserable failures on a grand scale of the history of humanity. So write to those U.S. senators in Maine and Alaska. You're talking about Susan Collins and, and Lisa Murkowski. Lisa Murkowski. You get out there and write to them this week and get all of your friends and family to do that and exercise your democracy and let's save democracy because it's hanging on by a thread. <laughs> so, by the way, get out there and see the Michael Moore movie, too. We just did that. And it's, what's it called? It's called Fahrenheit 11.9. Uh, it is, you know, it's just another epic, great movie. And forget about everything you think you know about Michael Moore or have read or, you know, reviews or seen on TV. Just do it. Go see that movie. And then let's talk. <laughs> you know, we started this program with a news story out of North Carolina. And we have listeners in North Carolina. And, you know, often on the West Coast, we tend to lump everyone in the South into a voting block of... Um, Make America Great, people who are, you know, anti-environmental regulation. And that is just not the case. They have been fighting Duke Energy on this coal sludge ponds for years. And they have had several major spills of this toxic coal dust. And during the last hurricane, they warned that this could happen again. And it is happening again. So it's what's happening with our democracy is the majority of people want healthy water. They want healthy food. <clears throat> they do not want to have their children poisoned by pesticides or themselves. They want to breathe clean air. And they want their children to survive on this planet, regardless of party. <clears throat> Somehow, a small majority of people have been convinced that if you unleash the power of corporations, 
They're going to solve these problems for us. They're going to protect our health. And that's simply not the case. And it's not that they're evil billionaires. It's that capitalism itself has an amoral construct called a corporation. And its job is to increase profits for its shareholders, period, regardless of how. And so until we rewrite the rules for what charters a corporation, that's we're going to get expect to have more of the same, unfortunately. I think we're going to have to retool not just our democracy and revive it, but change the rules about corporate monopolies because everything's become a monopoly. The media has become a monopoly. So have the chemical corporations. Everything's down to five or three. Um, so in, if you're going to retool democracy... You have to go back to the age of the robber barons where we said they couldn't run all the railroads and they couldn't dominate agriculture with their railroad taxes. I mean, that's the moment we have to return to, I believe, if we're going to get a handle on these health issues we're talking so about. One key. thing that requires is everybody participating and, and people who are um, fed up or don't think their vote counts. Well, right now we're in a moment with when if everybody did exercise their citizenship, their birthright to vote, we could really make a difference. We could get some new candidates the, in there who could do some rewriting. of. And the key to all this is getting the truth out there. Speaking of which, Mary just said rewriting. Mary's a writer. She's written a book, I'll just put in a little plug here, about all this stuff, about the pesticides in the schools, but she didn't want to write a documentary. She turned it into a murder mystery novel <laughs> called Fruit of the Devil. And it turns out that was an ingenious title that a friend of ours kind of inspired because the Fruta del Diablo is the name that the berry pickers, mostly immigrants, give to the strawberry because they still live under great exploitation and squalor and work in those conditions. So anyway, Fruit of the Devil, it's coming out. You can go to fruitofthedevil.net, right? And you can at least get some teasers about it. And yeah, and probably uh, spring of 2019. This Great. coming spring. Well, yeah. I want to thank you both for coming in. Any final words as we uh, round up this interview? Thoughts for the future, what people might do like after listening to this interview, besides yeah. write letters and get active in these organizations. Any other ideas? Um, vote. Uh, yeah, vote. I, I, I think, you know, feet in the streets. I, we, we need to put our bodies out there. Um, uh, I think that we've seen in this country that's when we've made real change. Um, and that's our power. We have numbers. Um, and next week, our show is about the American voting systems and the voting machines and voter disenfranchisement and all those issues. So, uh, so nice segue. And I got a couple minutes of cosmic let, relief let here. Let me first thank okay. our guests. Yeah, yeah. We've been listening to Mark Weller of Californians for Pesticide Reform and Mary Flodine of the group Safe Ag, Safe Schools. Thank you both for being here on Planet Watch. Thank you. It's been a thank great you. pleasure. Thanks to both of you for coming in. Great contributions to the enlightenment and the getting the truth out there. Um, hey, you know what? It's the first full day of fall here in the Northern Hemisphere or spring for our friends in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> and these are the only two days of the year when the sun actually rises due east and sets due west, no matter where you are on the planet. Everywhere on the planet, today, or yesterday, it was the equinox, but any, any time in the next few days, if you want to know where east is and where west is, watch the sunrise and the sunset, wherever you are. Um, also, um, well, let's see, uh, the harvest moon, 
is coming up. It's always the full moon that is closest to the fall equinox. And I'm going to tell you the story of why that's called the harvest moon. And actually, we're talking about farming and agriculture, so it's very appropriate. Harvest, harvest moon. Um, the, the moon rises roughly, on average, almost an hour later from one night to the next. The average is about 50 minutes, five zero minutes later from night. But it varies, and in particular, the full moon and nearly full moon in the fall always rises, uh, and it depends on your latitude a little bit, but much shorter time, like only 15, 20, 25 minutes later from one night to the next. So that meant back when you had workers in the fields, and by the way, the full moon always comes up near sunset or at sunset, right? So you go from the light of the sun into right through twilight into the light of the full or nearly full moon. Okay, well, if for three or four nights running, you have the moon, nearly full moon coming up at roughly the same time as the sun goes down with very little variation, then you had three or four nights running where the workers could keep working in the fields from sunset into full moonlight. Does that make sense? And it's all because around the fall, I mean, to understand why, I'd have to draw you some pictures and call us or email us if you want to know. I'm happy to explain to you. But there is this thing where the full or nearly full moon only rises a few minutes later from night to night for a few nights running around full moon in the fall, right near the fall equinox. So observe that. These next few nights, uh, watch the timing of the full or nearly full moon rising the next few nights. You'll see it comes up not anywhere near a whole hour or 50 minutes later, but a much shorter time. So there you go. We're coming up on the harvest moon. And uh, you have about one more week, maybe two, I'd say, to see Venus at its brightest low in the southwest. It's this amazing, brilliant white beacon. It's so bright you can see it. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, this white dot in the blue sky, it's, it's so bright it would cast a shadow if you're in a really dark place. But it's about to go between us and the sun in a couple of weeks, so you'll then only be able to see three planets, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars arrayed across the southwest to southeast sky. So keep an eye on that stuff. Keep an eye on the sky. Thanks for listening, and uh, tune in next week for a really rousing discussion about the vagaries of American voting and whither American democracy. Indeed. And that's Planet Watch for this week with your host, Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan. Special thanks to intern Tommy Martin and our guests, Mark Weller and Mary Flodine. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Listening to KSEO San